this episode, actor and writer Sarah Soleimani talks about her work and her activism, including petitioning for sex workers' rights. And she shares a powerful moment of sisterhood. And we had this moment of sort of togetherness that we can make work as women and support each other. We had a lot of challenges on the shoot. And that really felt like a powerful sisterly moment for me. I also review Never Gonna Snow Again and I Am Belle Meyer with two top critics. And we also share our London Film Festival highlights in today's Girls on Film. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome. I'm your host, Anna Smith. This episode is in partnership with the French cognac house Remy Martin, so I am currently toasting them with a sidecar cocktail, which involves cognac, Cointreau, a splash of lemon juice and a lick of lemon peel. Cheers. My first guests today are critics Leslie Felperin and Beth Webb. Leslie, welcome back to Girls on Film and Beth, welcome to Girls on Film. First time. Yes, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, Anna. Absolutely thrilled to have you. Now, listen, Beth, I know you've been doing a bit of London Film Festival stuff. We're nearing the end of the festival as we're recording. What have the highlights been for you so far? Well, it has been such a good programme this year. Really hats off to the festival team for being able to pull this out, you know, after the year that they had last year. This has been absolutely wonderful. So um, I've got to see the surprise film, which was wonderful. And it wasn't What was the surprise film? So it wasn't ruined for me until I sat down, which is the best possible way to see the surprise film. And it was uh, Mike Mills' uh, Come On, Come On, starring Joaquin Phoenix, which was just such a joy to see up on a big screen. I know we're probably sick to death of saying that. You know, well, you've got to see it on a big screen. You've got to see it on a big screen. But honestly, to see that beautiful film, Robbie Ryan's cinematography, who I adore. He did cinematography on things like the, everything from The Favourite to like Nick Cave's concert films. He's such a wonderful British cinematographer. And to see that up in Festival Hall was just glorious. So that was wonderful. And then I'd also really recommend uh, The Lost Daughter, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut with just the most stellar cast that you could hope for. So Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, Paul Meskell, who of course has broken out through normal people. And I feel like Mikey Gyllenhaal just saw normal people and was like, yeah, I want that guy in my film. Like, I really want this guy. It really does feel like a part that's been written for him. You don't have kids? Yes, I have two daughters. You're my big girl. <sighs> She's driving me crazy. What were your daughters like when they were little? I can't remember much, actually. Just an astonishing performance from Olivia Coleman as well in the lead and such interesting ruminations on motherhood and family and 
growing up and having kids but told with real empathy and sensuality as well. It's a really hot film, I will say. So that was definitely a highlight for me. I loved it too. In fact, we I spoke to Maggie yesterday um, and we're going to be, when it comes out in January, we're going to be sharing that with the listeners. So it touches on a lot of the themes that you mentioned there, the interview. So I'm excited to share that. Uh, Leslie, you got to see the opening night film, didn't you? The Harder They Fall. That's right. Yes, which was um, a Netflix film. So I think that's a first for them to be opening the festival festival at least this festival yeah it was tremendous I mean I didn't go to the the big splashy star-filled premiere I went to the press screening at the festival hall in the morning uh but that was great fun in itself and yeah it's a, a really rompy film I thought it was a, a really bullshit uh bold choice to open the festival because it's quite violent and it's quite genre which is you know traditionally I think in the older administrations the opening night films are often kind of a little bit sort of serious and draw high drama and and quite British and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. And this is none of those things. And you know, this was a really kind of gutsy, fun Western with all black cast. I mean, there were a couple of white, white actors in it, but mostly almost everyone was black. Strong female presence, you know, great performances from from the whole cast, Jonathan Majors, especially, who I absolutely adore, who's in just about everything at the moment. He's suddenly really hot. He was in Lovecraft Country and quite a few things. And so it was a lot of fun. You know, things I think could have been more ironed out. It's a little bit School of Tarantino, if that's not too rude a thing to say about it, in, in the sense that it kind of rewrites history. It takes a whole bunch of these historical characters from Western history who were real people who were like some of the mech slaves, you know, like Stagecoach Annie, Stagecoach Mary and stuff like that. And, you know, sort of throws them all into the mix, you know, writes a story in which they all run into each other. When, when in, in fact, they never met each other. In fact, lived at quite different ends of the, of the 19th century spectrum Some in some cases. So it's that kind of, you know, fast and loose with history, which is fine, which is, you know, but but if it's kind of being held up as a kind of, exemplar of black history you know in what is i think black history month i think that's a little problematic but then maybe it's not for me to say to make those judgments where is he where is who your boss my boss clearly you don't know me i heard rufus buck was back this ain't no road to ask a friend to travel you think destiny's coming to you my guns go back It, it is quite fantastical and stylized, isn't it? And I, I, I found it, I did go to the splashy premiere and I, sitting there in a sequin trouser suit, that was the wrong decision because it was very <laughs> uncomfortable for two and a half hours. I'm like, this really hurts now. Um, but I tell you what, it was the wrong decision for any occasion. Uh, I think, I mean, they were I feel they're always the right decision in some but ways, they, but yeah. Never under in the, the cinema. armpits as well. Never under the armpits. That's always really painful yes, too. This yes, is what yeah. I learned. Um, but uh, so I did find it overlong, but I did, I think you're right on the representation front. It was a really exciting film. I mean, how wonderful to see a film with an all-back cast and really, as you say, really powerful, complex female characters as well. So, yeah, bravo, LFF. And loads more recommendations, which we'll be sharing. Um, and today we're going to talk about two films that are out and are not part of the festival, but I think are both really interesting and different and worthy of discussion. And the first one is called I Am Belmire. It's a documentary from Sue Carpenter and Belmire Nepali. She's also the film's subject. She's a young Nepalese woman with everything stacked against her. But 
but she finds strength and power through a course in filmmaking. So what a perfect film for girls on film. I just thought, you know, this young woman empowered by becoming a filmmaker. Beth, what did you think of it? Did you find it inspiring? I certainly did. This was a a film that spanned 14 years of this young woman's life. And what a life she's had. I mean, such as as you said, you know, just just the odds stacked against her at every corner. She's faced oppression through her family, through she's part of an abusive household. Her husband is abusive towards her, but really has been up against prejudice and aggression for her entire life. So it's worth noting as well, she's referred to as low caste in this film, which is kind of an an untouchable level of humanity is how she's referred to. And then her town is very against her social status as well. So she's a real fighter. And through picking up a, a film camera, in spite of all of this prejudice, in spite of this oppression and pursuing this thing that she cares about so much is is such a marvel to behold, this kind of study of resilience. And I think it is it is great that so it's Sue Carpenter and as you say, uh, Belle Mayer herself, to to ensure that she is a voice in the storytelling as well is, I think, very, very important. So it's kind of a collage of Sue Carpenter's work where she's been studying Belle Mayer for her whole life, essentially. She's, she's young. She's young in this film. You know, it operates within a very different culture. So to bring in her narrative within that and feature some of her filmmaking as well, which I think is really important. So she really is key to the storytelling here. And it not only imbues the story with this real sense of, of personality, but it also just, just makes for better viewing, I think. And ethically, I think it works better also. And then also as a subject, I think there's something so extraordinary about Barmea, about how she communicates with the camera. There's a real openness to her. And I'm sure I'm not doing I'm not taking the critical route here, but her face is extraordinary. She has such a strong face for want of a better word there's there's she just wears everything on it there's a a really touching scene within within this documentary where it's her her little girl's birthday I believe and she's holding the little girl Sue's catching her with with tears in her eyes at the the thought that her little girl might not have the opportunities that she wants her to have and it's just all there it's all there on this very expressive face and your heart just your heart just goes out to this to this young woman and you just really want to give her the world I I, I, I thought this was extraordinary who wants to be a photographer when they grow up no! Leslie, what did you make of it? Were you equally moved? I was. I thought it was it was a really beautiful film. You can't but be moved by the story, and I think Beth has summed it up beautifully, you know, that it's it's just it's a very powerful narrative. You know, I, I it's a really interesting origin story in that Sue Carpenter, as I understand it, went over to Nepal and gave all these young women and and I think boys too, but children access to cameras right when digital cameras were coming in and they were suddenly quite cheap. And you could just give them and see what they did. And it was this hugely empowering thing. So I think it's this really fascinating 
you know, just taking a step back and, and, and away from the emotion of it. It's quite interesting that this is a kind of story that can only be told now. There's something very of its moment, you know, in this point in history that people have been given access to the means of production in a very literal way. So Belmaya showed a you know, great promise just taking photographs and she was just taking still pictures and her work, she clearly has a really great eye. She's really smart. And, you know, and yet she was treated like just dirt by the society around her. You know, their, he, her husband's family looked down on her because she was lower caste. Before that, she went to school and she was told that she had a brain full of cow dung. And, you know, just and she's clearly incredibly intelligent. And also, God knows where this comes from, but she's just like a, a natural fighter. You know, she, she's not aggressive, but she's just, you know, fought her corner. She was determined to keep going. I mean, she made certain choices. Like she got married young. She had a child. And, you know, her husband is much more traditional person, not much less. And, and over the, I hope it's not a spoiler, but over the course of the film, they end up splitting up, But which is, you kind of think, thank God. But, you know, at the same time, <laughs> you know, I, you can see he's struggling to understand it. I mean, he's a traditional, you know, regular guy. He's a boatman. You know, he doesn't understand what it's like to have a wife. It's, it's a, you know, there are certain things that I thought I, I would have liked to have been brought to the surface a bit more because there's, a kind of inherent culture clash going on between Sue, who I think maybe almost too scrupulously tries to take herself out of the film. You see her in sh occasional shots. The film kind of puts Belmayo's work in literally in a frame. So you kind of cut between Sue's footage of her f filming Belmaya and Belmaya's own footage. And it makes you quite want to see the films she makes. She makes a film about you know, it's got this very kind of polemical title of Educate Your Girls, kind of a heartfelt plea that women should be educated on the same level as men, you know, which seems something like, well, why should you have to argue it to, to us privileged Westerners? But in that context, it's a really sort of quite provocative thing to say. So you see little bits of her film throughout, but, you know, it's kind of cordoned off a little bit. And so it's a decision could have been made to sort of make it a film by both of them. But I think it's mostly, it's, it's credited to Sue because it is Sue's film, but she kind of doesn't quite take ownership and kind of does. So there's this kind of sense of the invisible white lady behind it, slightly setting up and making a lot of the decisions about the editing and how that story is constructed and making it all a very sort of positive thing. But you're kind of wondering what is not being told to us too. And, you know, I find that a little quizzical. You know, I mean, it's on the whole emotionally... A moving film, but there there are certain things that make you kind of think, mm, yeah, okay, you know. Yeah, I know. I know you're saying. I feel like a follow up or even a making of would be would be interesting to see, actually. So I hope we do see more from them both. I know they're they're very much in touch and very close friends now, which is really lovely. So, yeah, go Belmeyer, I say. Thank you both for your thoughts on that. Our next film is also co-directed. It's um, called Never Gonna Snow Again, which is a stylish genre-blending Polish film. It's set in a wealthy suburban community, starring Alec Utkov as a quiet but charismatic Ukrainian masseur. <laughs> Now, this um, comes from Michael Englert and the director of Elle. And Leslie, apparently, you know exactly how to pronounce her name, so go for it. 
Well, just by just for sheer luck, I met a Polish person last night who told me it's. I showed her the name. And she went, oh yeah, of course. You don't pronounce the L. It's Malgorzata, Malgorzata, Shumovska, and so the S Z part is pronounced sh. So Shumovska, Malgorzata Shumovska. Malgorzata Shumovska. Yeah, great stuff. I'm going to start with you, Beth. I mentioned that this plays with a lot of genres. I know this is a difficult question, um, but what genres would you say this does work with? Like, like a handful. I'd say a fistful of genres is how you would describe this tonally. And I, I mean, I really do love films that take dramatic circumstances and, and kind of imbue them with genre, sorry, or, or push boundaries when it comes to genre. And this is a really fine very stylish, very, very beautiful example of kind of blending genres. So as you've said, it's a, it's a kind of character study in a way about this um, young man, Xenia, who is orphaned, I believe, this masseuse and, and goes to this kind of uh, cookie cutter community behind a, a gated sort of wall, essentially acts as a masseuse, a healer, if you will, but also, you know, this stranger that comes into these people's homes, essentially. They don't really know very much about him. They don't really ask very much about him, apart from a, a little light xenophobia, I would say he plays in from time to time. But yeah, so he kind of operates as this, uh, yeah, like a listener. He's like a very um, passive presence in in their lives, aside from the healing. And But it also through this sort of approach to storytelling, you get satire, which I, I really enjoy. There's a lot of kind of social commentary. The xenophobia is is played for laughs, really. It's it's portrayed in a very lighthearted way. There's kind of commentary on class and privilege as well. And then there's just a dash of magical realism in there, which plays out. There's some kind of uh, Tarkovsky references that kind of work their way in. And then this very subtle, very beautifully uh, visualized um, um, political message to it as well, uh, which you do hear in the title, admittedly, Never Gonna Snow Again, but it doesn't feel like you're being kind of bludgeoned over the head with this uh, with this messaging. So yeah, just, just a fistful of genres that are really, really beautifully visualized in this. And then cemented by this absolutely wonderful performance from uh, Alec Yutkov. Uh, Leslie, I hope I am <laughs> doing that pronunciation justice. The casting of him, I think is absolutely spot on. I hadn't seen him in very much uh, before this, aside from Stranger Things, which when I put the pieces together, he, he gets quite a tragic little ending in uh, Stranger Things. But he is, he's wonderful. Again, it's all in the face with this casting. And he has such a, a wonderful open face. You can really see why these people sort of put their trust in telling him their secrets, their insecurities, their frustrations as well. And then he's got this really soft, soulful physicality to him in the way that he performs these massages on people and dogs. is uh, <laughs> something that comes in a little way. Great dog in. action in this film. Oh, yeah. spot on dog action, really. I know we're all cat people, but yeah. So so yeah, it, it really is this this wonderful, masterful blend of, of genre and then a really expert exercise in casting as well. I, I agree of all that yeah I thought it was really strong actually I really liked it I thought it was um, um, I mean there's one of the interesting things is that he's a Russian speaking Ukrainian so you know you just, you keep, it keeps coming up there's several different languages going on in the film so there's Polish and Ukrainian and French at one point and Vietnamese you know like he speaks all of them he sort of says and he has this kind of I mean it reminded me of I don't know if you ever saw that Pasolini film Theorem 
from the 60s where there's this handsome young man comes into this household and everyone suddenly sort of fetishizes him and desires him and he's you know kind of blank slate on which people paint their desires and it's the same idea here as well um or even joe orton's entertaining mr sloan where this kind of beautiful stranger comes and ignites everyone's loins a little bit so all the women kind of fall in love with him the men too a little bit not quite so much the men falling in love with him in this but he's again not so much of an enigma as he is in some of those older kind of films where you have the same stranger enters setup. He's, it's hinted that he's a survivor of Chernobyl. You know, he keeps mentioning that he's from Pripyan, which is the, you know, the town that was next to the, the Chernobyl nuclear power reactor and, and, and that he lived through it and his mother died. Having lived through the Chernobyl uh, nuclear power, power plant accident, whether he's developed some kind of almost supernatural skills because he can kind of massage people and sense their feelings so he's got he's got a bit of a faith healer quality to him that he not faith healer but you know he can naturally just through tactile touch kind of you know access what's going wrong and uh you know i've met masseuses who say that they 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 do they can sort of sense where things are blocked or where things are aren't working on when you're drunk well they can probably smell it if you're drunk but you know but you know he's he's got more kind of depth to him and he is you know very against the grain of kind of Russian masculinity. He's, I know he's Ukrainian, but, you know, he's, it's not usually... I mean, I've seen a lot of Russian films because it's one of my areas of specialty for the trade magazines I write for. And they, they usually present as very macho and very... So he's very kind of poetic and gentle and almost feminine, the way he is a kind of object of desire, particularly to these older women who are all kind of living in these McMansions, you know, living rather lives of, you know the idle rich and it's you know which is interesting in itself because we don't often see that side of polish society although of course being part of the eu they are that bit more affluent unlike britain you know than 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 uh, you know there some of their neighbors are like belarus or ukraine or or indeed russia it's interesting you mentioned about um his kind of lack of traditional masculinity because obviously we're girls on film and i love this film so i wanted to talk about it but i'm thinking is it significant that it was made partially by a woman? You know, is there a gender angle here? And I think that may be one of them, the fact that he bucks that, you know, typical gender roles. But is there anything else, particularly in the female characters, that struck either of you? I think they're very strong women. I mean, you know, there's that, but there's also that they're... Um, it's interesting that it's a film a bit about parenting, you know, in a sort of sly way. You know, most of the characters have children or in the case of one, she's a sort of mother to her three bulldogs, you know, and then, and he has these very complicated things about his mother that he's lost. So it's a bit about those kind of relationships, those familial relationships and those intimacies. You know, it's an interesting film about community. And I think, although I wouldn't want to kind of overstress, you know, that there was anything essentially female, uh, I'm going to have another crack at her name, Zhumovska's view. I wouldn't say that, that it's, you know, there's an essentialness that's make it makes film, but I think um, it's definitely interested in emotions in a slightly different way. And it's it's got this kind of skew with art house from the side look at things, which is really interesting. I think she also made a really interesting called um, about her first English language film, which played at the San Sebastian Film Festival not too long ago, which is called The Other Lamb, which was fantastic, which is also a kind of interesting film about the female and, and it was about kind of cults, this young, young girl named, uh, played by Rafi Cassidy. And she's kind of in this kind of cult, which is a bit like, you know, 
evangelicals and you know living in the woods and stuff like that and then things kind of start to implode so she takes quite interesting views of things so this is a you know um, a male protagonist sort of a female one but it's again it's kind of about a closed community which is kind of looking in on itself and has its own kind of weird internal strifes and and tensions and i think that's definitely what Zhumovska seems to be interested in and more power to her. So, you know, it's, yeah, and that's what I, what did you think, Bethany? I would concur with all that. An interesting point about the parenthood as well. I think it's safe to say that most of these characters or, or the people that are visited are quite self-involved. So I hadn't thought about the parenting aspect, but but through those roles and the, the lack of parenting, certainly on the side of Alex's character. Yeah, very, very interesting commentary. Also, I guess from a female perspective, the, the characters, though they are, they're almost quite Lynchian, I think, in the way that they all have these kind of very um, strong traits to them, some of them quite garish, and, and there's kind of a strong aesthetic as well, where it's just opposed against these like beautiful but quite sterile interiors. But they're all incredibly well-drawn. Nobody is is one and the same. Nobody is defined by one single thing. You know, the, the mother of the dogs is an incredibly caring and uh, vulnerable woman. There, there is a lot of vulnerability that's kind of woven throughout this community. Nobody is outwardly happy behind closed doors. Whether that is because of the, the dual directorship, I'm not entirely sure, but it is notable, absolutely. And there's a great deal of empathy shown towards these characters as well. Nobody is seen as cruel. Nobody is seen as as guarded or, um, I, I mean, aside from, like, you can almost forgive things like the, the, the xenophobia and things because it's just that they're a product of something greater. They're a product of privilege. And the fact that you can still sympathize with them, I think, is a great, <laughs> great feat of writing. There's a big problem with xenophobia in Poland at the moment, which is having their own kind of doubts about their membership of the EU. And uh, there's a far right government in, in power. And, you know, there's a whole thing there. So I think in a way, the film is just sort of touching on a very kind of live issue going on in the, in the society and not endorsing necessarily the xenophobia they're being a bit they're, they're they're sending it up i think there's definitely a kind of like oh god you know these people beth you mentioned the snow earlier would either of you like to comment on the symbolism of the snow and what you made of that i thought the snow it was kind of connected to that you see in the flashbacks to the bits about chernobyl and pripyat um the when there was a kind of radioactive snow which was kind of ash falling so it kind of connects to that in a way I wouldn't say it's a straight sort of symbol of anything particularly but one of the kids in the film says that so it's never going to snow again because they had heard that there will be a point when snow will stop because of global warming so there's a kind of environmental aspect to it but I wouldn't say it was a straight up symbol of anything in particular except of maybe of lost childhood or lost innocence it's always lost innocence isn't it yeah absolutely I think there's something in the the quite peaceful rhythm of it as well. Like there's a silence, there's a kind of glacial quality to the snow, which is symptomatic of the pacing as well. Like this is a very glacial film. Like the the way that Alex's character moves throughout the buildings and makes his way to work in the mornings. When he goes home as well, it's important to note that his home is essentially just the four walls, badly wallpapered <laughs> four walls and a very empty existence that he goes home to. So I think it's, it's quite symptomatic of his character, of his personality as well. And there's a real purity to him, which I think is, again, visualised through the snow. 
Um, but it, none of it feels overbearing. None of it feels heavy handed. I think I've just watched, I've watched quite a few. <laughs> I've talked a lot about Squid Game recently just to draw on something completely opposite. And that is really a way to clobber you repeatedly over the head with a message <laughs> about privilege. Whereas if you look at something like this, that's subtle, that's, that, as I say, just beautifully visualized, this is, this is a lot more compelling. So I think we all recommending Never Gonna Snow Again, as well as I Am Belmire. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you both enjoyed it. I feel there's two strong releases which aren't necessarily being talked about loads, so I'm pleased we've been able to discuss them today. I just want to wrap up saying, what are you both up to? Beth, where can people see your work? What are you up to? So I am contributing editor for Empire Magazine and also do a lot of telly work. So I co-host the Pilot TV podcast, um, and you can find me at Beth K. Webb on Twitter. Also, I have to mention I co-run the Bechdel Test Fest, which is an ongoing celebration of women in cinema. So you can find us at Bechdel Test Fest on social media. Well, we love the Bechdel Test Fest. Fantastic. And Leslie, what are you up to? Where can people find your work? Uh, I write for The Hollywood Reporter and I write some reviews for The Guardian. Well, usually every week. But I've just recently spread my wings a little bit and did my first piece of travel journalism for the Financial Times. For my sins, they sent me to to the Faroe Islands, which was fascinating because, because the Faroe Islands, at the towards the end of the new Bond film, you know the island, it's supposed to be somewhere between Russia and Japan. Well, it's not. It's the in the Faroe Islands. And they sent the whole crew there for three weeks just to film reference for that. So, and then they sort of CGI'd in, you know, a submarine base and uh, all this sort of stuff, but and, and CGI'd out all the sheep, of which there are twice as many as people in the Faroe Islands. And it was just really fascinating. I met the guy who was like the coordinator and I got, you know, somehow managed to get 1,500 words out of the whole thing in the FT, which was great, you know. So that was really great fun and a beautiful place. Listen, thank you both so much for joining Girls on Film. It's been such a pleasure to have you both on. I hope you'll come back again soon. That was Leslie Felperin and Beth Webb. You can watch I Am Belmire now in UK cinemas and on demand at Curzon Home Cinema and the BFI Player. Never Gonna Snow Again is in cinemas now. My next interview is with Sarah Soleimani, the award-winning screenwriter of Barry, who you'll also recognise as an actress from Him and Her, Bridget Jones's Baby and How to Build a Girl. She wrote the four-part BBC One drama Ridley Road, which is currently on BBC iPlayer. Starring Agnes O'Casey, it's the story of a young Jewish woman who gets caught up in a group of men who are standing up against the rise of neo-Nazism in post-war Britain. They're gaining power up and down the country. I told you to stay away. Are you anti-fascist or are you not? An anti-fascist fights. Go in, get it done, get out. We've got to get ahead of them, Vivian. Are you frightened of me? Huh? caught in the middle of a fascist march. Who are you, really? We well, have to act now. I know what you are. You don't know anything about me. Well, Sarah, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Well, we've wanted to get you on for a long time. Big fans of your work and your activism. Um, but let's start with Ridley Road. What a terrific watch and a very important one. Why did you want to tell this story and now? Well, I first read Joe Bloom's book, Ridley Road. I had known that there'd been fascist sentiment, you know, and, and fascist activism in that area. So it's part of London that my dad's from. So I knew it was there, but I didn't know how organised it was. And I didn't know how organised the resistance movement was, the 62 group, which were these Jewish 
uh, men and women who clubbed together to literally fight fascists off the streets of London and ultimately push them to the fringes of British politics. So I read it and I loved Joe's writing and I loved this character that was this young girl from Manchester who was a hairdresser who hadn't been out of Manchester and she comes into London and she falls into this underworld. Not in the book, that was my invention that she falls into the underworld, but I loved the character and her essence and her femininity. And then it was a long process to get it to the screen. And the tragic irony was that every year that passed, the show became more and more relevant and fascist or, I mean, that word's used, you know, quite liberally now, but the idea of being persuaded by someone who is a populist strong man who can point the finger and say the reason for your problems are over there and then they look like that. Yeah. The re- and that popping up in Eastern Europe and in England and in America and in Brazil and in India and us not understanding it. To me, it was like, well, here's a show that's not only a very, we could make a very suspenseful thriller-like story, but help unpack what is happening in the moment that can feel quite confusing and overwhelming. The gender of your lead character gives a lot of opportunity to examine the gender dynamic in various different communities at that time. Are there any particular moments in the series you would like to highlight from that perspective? Well, first of all, just being a Londoner, and just walking the streets, you know, as a teenager, as a schoolgirl, and what people f- thought they could do and hurl and say, and that's in there. Like, she's a lot of, just a lot of, like, cheer up loves. And I, I think I put in the script, but more sort of harassment uh, that made it on the screen in the street. But, I mean, she has enough uh, to deal with this character when she navigates London. And in her own community, you know, it was a Jewish suburban family that wanted her to, have this marriage that she didn't want that was a real pressure of the time the mother didn't work was a a homemaker and it was just as just before Betty Friedan's the feminine mystique came out so it was just on the cusp of the first you know this woman's movement that was going to unpack what being a housewife was because it was still coming out of that 50s era so she has that to grapple with and then the activist group that she's she finds herself in the 62 group have their own biases against her because she's just a sort of silly girl. And so she has to navigate that. And actually you're the first person who's asked me about the gender of this show, because obviously people want to talk about the Jewish aspect, but yes, she's, and even with her lover, even with Jack, this romance story, he's like, you're in, you're in over your head, you're out of your depth, like back off. And she just says, no, you guys aren't solving it. I am going all in. And that, that female, that sense of it's our aloneness in the world is what fuels her throughout the show. Get your hands off Listen me. to me. Listen to me. <clears throat> 15 arson attacks on synagogues. We're talking Molotov cocktails, explosives, the whole shebang. What happened? I don't know, do I? Seven teenagers attacked by Clapton Pond. Cricket bats, knives, iron rods would have been dead, should have been dead. So what happened to you? All stopped, all saved. How? How? Your uncle got a tip off from inside, from me. You, I think you're one of them. Well, it ticks a lot of boxes for us on Girls on Film, so thank you for your work on that. And also, brother, for your activism. I mean, I know you're involved in two things that we've recently been talking about on Girls on Film, which is sex workers' rights and raising films. Are there any other specific causes you think that we should be shouting about as feminists? Well, I do think the sex working issue is still very misunderstood mm-hmm. and becomes quite entangled, especially in like feminist discourse. And the reality is 
that we have very Victorian laws that keep women in danger when they're sex workers. We shouldn't be treating the most vulnerable and the poorest women in our society as criminals. And it's very easy to fix. You take out the brothel keeping laws, you take out the soliciting laws, and you you take out these curb crawling laws. And women can be safer. And in feminist discourse, the argument that it shouldn't exist is really talking about reparations before you've recognized slavery exists. Okay, if you think it shouldn't exist, it shouldn't exist. But at the moment, if a sex worker is raped or robbed and she goes to the police, there is more chance of her being arrested than her perpetrator being arrested. And that is just fundamentally wrong. And we need to build relationships with sex workers and the police so that they are protected. And also there are first defense These women are first defense against very dangerous men, which is why serial killers always kill sex workers first. They need protection. And in a dignified society, I really feel like these laws should be amended. How do you feel your activism plays into your work? I mean, obviously, Ridley Road is a great example, but obviously you've been in some quite mainstream films and TV shows. How does it inform what you choose to do? Once you grasp just what it takes out of you, to make any piece of work on screen. The hours, the emotional investment, it's very hit and miss making something anyway. There's never a guarantee it'll be any good. So you you just need to know going into it why you're telling the story, you know, what why are you going in? What are the reasons you're going in for it? And if it first of all, you want to be entertaining and you want to give audiences, you want to transport them to a different place and give them respite from, you know, their lives because life is hard and overwhelming and you want to take them to a different dimension and there's that. And then hopefully on the way you want to say something or help unpack something or further the needle or, or ask a difficult question or let someone see themselves. And this is, I mean, I'm working with Mary Trump now, adapting her book, Too Much and Never Enough, The Scream. And it's really, it's just about helping America see itself, just like with Ridley Road, just helping Britain see itself. And that's the job of the artist is to do that. But the activist part of me feels the energy that you put into getting something made because people didn't want to make a show, a drama about Jewish people. We like comedies about Jewish people. We like documentaries about the Holocaust, but we don't really put Jewish heroes front and center of mainstream drama. So I had to use the activist energy, which is very inspired by the sex workers, especially the English collective prostitute women that I work with. You know, they're absolutely relentless and it's tedious just saying the same thing over and over again. But you have to keep going and and you have to celebrate your victories. This is what they taught me. Uh, You celebrate the victories when they come. And you sort of know that it's an ongoing battle, but it's one that you dedicate yourself to to furthering. You mentioned comedy. I mean, obviously, comedy also has an important role in educating people and, you know, things like Bridget Jones's Baby that you've been in reach such a wide audience. How do you approach trying to reach that audience with the messages while maintaining that comic spirit? I'm much more of the opinion, like, I just want as many people at the table as possible. And so I don't feel my writing is left or right I mean I I actually don't even think those paradigms are like sufficient for what's happening but but you do get a lot of preaching to the choir and it's just boring someone was joking to me I was at another show that says racism is bad it's not about being bad it's about understanding it and telling an interesting story that sheds light on something and I want as many I want people of all political persuasions to engage and maybe have dialogue 
And there's a certain kind of trade-off, the wider the net, maybe the you feel like you, you might be compromising or not offending people or, you know, you want to include people. And it's a sort of, it's a balancing act, but there is the sense that if you capture the essence of something, then it is a universal story or a character. And you can, I mean, my kind of sort of North Star that I'm just desperate to get to is like the mainstream place that's also doing something meaningful. And that's kind of where I'd love to be. What would you say? I mean, this is a broad topic, but what are the feminist highlights and the lowlights of your career so far? Moments that have made you go, yes, and other moments that have unfortunately made you a bit dispirited. Wow. <laughs> God, what an amazing question. I've just finished a show called Chivalry, which I wrote with Steve Coogan, and we're both in it. And a director called Marta Cunningham came on board really as like the third creator. And I learned a lot with working with her about my own, you know, experience of Me Too and my own buried pain and trauma. And a lot of the crew were women and they were sharing their experiences and sharing why this story was important for them. And and one of the crew said to me, thanks for bearing your soul. On rap, she said, thank you for bearing your soul. And we had this moment of sort of togetherness that we can make work as women and support each other. And we had a lot of challenges on the shoot. And that really felt like a powerful sisterly moment for me. And there have been, you know, God, the not feminist moment. I mean, being an actress in a pre-Me Too world is not easy. And I've been assaulted and I've been put in terrible positions that I shouldn't have been with the benefit of hindsight. But also not just sort of the big dramatic assaults, but the kind of attitude towards me is, oh, we've got, got one of those feminists on, on the set. You know, a lot of that sort of attitude from producers. Here she goes, you know, sort of talking about equal rights. And and I don't know how I, I was, how have I ended up being this jokey caricature of a feminist when I'm don't feel I'm being eccentric and unreasonable. I feel like I'm just saying basic human rights stuff that wasn't a given. And by several producers, I was made to feel like I was all right, Cambridge, you know, someone would say, all right, Cambridge. Yeah. Thanks very much. I'm in charge. And a lot of that I'm in, I'm in charge. And I think if a man ever has to tell you that they're in charge, they're not really great at being in charge. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. There's a lot of belittling involved, isn't there? You know, that kind of microaggressions. But I'm really sorry to hear what you said about being assaulted. And I think a lot of women are now looking back at what they used to almost not brush under the carpet, but they used to accept that that was part and parcel of life and now go, oh, my God, did you do anything? Did you report anything at the time? And would you behave differently now? You see, the psychology of being on set is so particular because you have to be uninhibited. You know, your, your job is to lose your inhibitions. And so everyone is trying to make a, a very artificial environment seem real. So you're sort of suspended on what? is acceptable and not because it's sort of exceptional circumstances but there was one incident where a man I don't think was well frankly I think he should he, he mentally wasn't stable and he had to um assassin you know kill me and, and I was playing a prostitute I was playing a prostitute to his murderous villain and and I got hurt I mean I got hurt and there was no stunt coordinator and the makeup artist just came and he strangled me in the thing you know and, and I couldn't breathe and he and the makeup artist just painted my neck where his fingerprints had been and I said to the director oh I'm sorry because I couldn't say my line 
because I couldn't breathe. I said, sorry, I didn't say my line. I mean, that gives you some sort of context on the state you're in on a, on a set. This is, wasn't in England as well. I, I traveled abroad for it. And the director went, oh, you know, don't worry about him. You know, he's just, that's just him. That's just how he is. That's just his. And I said, well, I couldn't breathe. That's why I couldn't say the line. And so this behavior often, not always, but mostly in male artists who are frightened because it's terrifying being so vulnerable on camera can be, and directors too are frightened, obviously, because there's a lot of pressure. And this this very aggressive male energy can come out. And if it's not contained or in some way managed, and that's why men now feel a bit policed, but women feel just so grateful. Like I work with an intimacy supervisor. I've never worked with one before. And just choreographing a sex scene like you would a fight, that has been a huge shift. And so I can't tell you the night and day of Me Too for the actress on a film set. It's incredible. Sarah, I really enjoy talking to you about this kind of topics. I think you're the perfect Girls on Film guest. Honestly, I feel like there's a lot more to talk about. So will you come back on again sometime and join Girls on Film? I really enjoyed speaking with you. And I want to send all my love to all the listeners. Thank you for having me and I'll definitely be back again. That was the wonderful Sarah Soleimani. You can watch Ridley Road on BBC iPlayer now. It was great to meet a few of you listeners at London Film Festival. Thanks for coming up to me to say hi. If you're going to the Cinemagic Film Festival in Belfast on the 30th of October, do come and see us live. The details are in the show notes. Also, just to flag, there's another female-directed LFF film coming to cinemas on the 29th of October. The film Quant is a doc about designer Mary Quant, and it's directed by Sadie Frost. I saw it at LFF and really enjoyed it, so check that out if you're a fashion fan. Girls on Film is an HLA production. Brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Emma Butt, assistant producer Heather Dempsey, interns Rosa Herxheimer and Shania Pithia, and our partners for this episode, Remy Martin. I'm Anna Smith, and I was joined by Sarah Soleimani, Beth Webb, and Leslie Felperin. Thank you, lovely listeners. Stay safe. We don't know anything.